Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Homage to the blessed, noble and perfectly enlightened one Together, Wu the unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I have come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I vow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master and Dharma friends, uh, welcome to the Sutra Lecture tonight. My name is Hung Shur, in case anybody forgot. I'm high, I've been away for four months, and it's great to be back. Um, please, everybody should get themselves a Sutra text. And uh, also, would you mind in the back passing out the songbooks? We need the songbooks tonight. They should be a stash of them, and if everybody could get one. Um, we're going to continue right where the um, nuns and others who have been lecturing, right where they left off. We're going to pick up, and it's on page 68. So if you want to put your finger on 68, but we're going to start by chanting the name of the sutra, as we usually do. And that's on the front cover. So if you'll turn. First we'll get the songbooks passed out. Then we'll go to the, the chanting of the name of the sutra. I think there are some songbooks up in the balcony too. You might want to. Okay, great. I managed to uh, catch a cold on the very last day of my four-month trip, and so you're going to be. We will be able to answer the eternal koan. What is the sound of one monk sniffing tonight? Because I'm going to be sound sniffing tonight. All right. Can we turn to the front cover of the text and we'll recite the name of the sutra? Oh. Uh-huh. 
So, uh, welcome to everybody who's joining us online. Thanks to our faithful, steady, high-tech volunteers and our tech crew, and everybody who uh, puts efforts into keeping the, the sutra lectures going. This is um, a pretty special thing that Master Shenhua uh, encouraged us to, to start, and we've, we've been turning the Dharma wheel uh, here for 17 years now. And Saturday night lecture is really the heartbeat of everything else that goes on at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery. And that has been continuous. And I'm really uh, appreciative of the, the folks who um, stood in while I was away to keep, the, keep, our, um, keep our Saturday night lectures alive. Um, there's an impressive number of systems at work before one of these lectures gets on the road with all of the uh, tools that we have in it. If you think of the Buddha under a tree, you know, and, and uh, people had to ask him to talk, you know, they saw this radiant, shining individual sitting there and wanted to know what he thought and what he knew. And so they came and bowed and said, Venerable Sir, will you please uh, share with us your wisdom? And that's how it began. It was one, one mouth and your ears listening. And now we have uh, recorders so that it can be posted online, and we have live streaming so that folks can tune in from around the world, and I'm, I'm told that they do. And uh, I have a very finely tuned mic so that you all can hear me as I speak, and I had to tune up my guitar and my banjo, and you notice there's no puppets tonight. No, nobody volunteered. They're all miffed at me for leaving them alone for four months, so I couldn't talk anybody into coming down, so I'll have to be nice to the puppets, and we'll see who, uh, who shows up next week. But, um, and then we have our text, which has been carefully, lovingly prepared um, so that we can have it in, have this, the text in two languages plus romanization and we have a Vietnamese translation going on in the balcony and uh, getting the Buddha Hall, our new carpet, which is just lovely, very nice. It feel, this feels good. The carpet is a, a definite plus and uh, then you all have to get in your vehicles and turn the engines over and come up the freeway or down the streets to get here on time. So lots of conditions have to be in place before uh, one of these happens, and yet it does. And the point is to get to hear the Buddha's voice. That's really the point, is to let the, the voice of the Buddha in the sutras be heard. So, um, having been in a place, in many places now, since the last four months, where um, none of these systems exist, uh, it's nice to be back and see all the, the, uh, the energy that goes into to letting us open the sutras and, and find out what the Buddha said. That's, that's a, just a joy. So we're on page 68, as I mentioned. Please turn, if you would. And we're on the third stanza. give you a line in Chinese and you can give it back or just observe as you choose. OK. 
Okay, here we go. 将求智慧益众生 Look over to the right. He sets out seeking wisdom to benefit all beings. Considers what expedients will bring them liberation. Not apart from the thus come ones unobstructed knowledge, which in turn arises from non production wisdom. All right. Now, um, in Sutra lectures past, we were trying to get back to the original format for these verses, which was chanted, not spoken. And uh, it's definitely a work in progress, but it's fun to kind of keep that in our consciousness. So let's see if we can chant these, and I'll give you a a chant tone. Uh, My Benedictine Dharma brother, Father Cyprian, says these are called chant tones in the Roman Catholic monastic tradition. And uh, uh, there's a... the, The Catholics have a bunch of them to choose from. And my... I'm trying to uh, imitate his what he taught me about that, and I don't have it quite right. So as we uh, propose these ideas, if anybody is inspired to take this the next step and, and drill down into the, um, our own Western tradition of chanting, I would love to hear from you. So give me your feedback on how we can... Uh, add the musical layer to these texts to make them, um, number one, more memorable. People add music because it it goes down better. You remember them better. And two, um, there's something very special in adding that, um, uh, the extra layer. It, It excites different cells in the brain when you give it a musical pitch. So let's let's see what we can do. Chang Chu Jihui Yi Chong Shang Chang Chihui Yi He sets out seeking wisdom to benefit all beings. Considers what expedients will bring them liberation. Liberation. Not apart from the thus comes unobstructed knowledge, Not from the thus comes unobstructed knowledge. 
which in turn arises from non-production, uh, which in turn arises from non-production wisdom, which in turn arises from non-production wisdom. Okay, it's a little forced, but it's, you know, uh, nice. The, the idea is that uh, originally this is oral tradition. Originally it was, like I say, my voice, your ears. There was no text. It wasn't written down. The reason largely being because people couldn't read. The ones who could read were the priests, the Brahmins and others. And once the text was written down, it became theirs. Um, and that, that has lots of baggage with it. So in order to prevent that and to keep the Dharma where it was meant to be, which is available to people to end suffering. That's, that's the point of the Buddha's speaking. Um, the Buddha said, keep it in the vernacular, keep it in the oral tradition. So they did that. But as one generation of monks got old and died, people said, hey, how do we keep the Dharma alive? So they said, well, I'll chant it for you and you can remember it and pass it on. And anybody who's ever tried to memorize something knows it goes better when there's a when there's a heartbeat in it. Ba-bum, ba-bum, ba-bum. Likewise, it sticks in the mind when you got a da di da di dum da 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 di 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 dum dum da da di di. Pentatonic is the one. Just if anybody's keeping track, the five tone scale, which is the heart of Chinese music, most Asian music is pentatonic, and African music is largely pentatonic. That's why the blues is pentatonic, largely, and Celtic music from Ireland is pentatonic, largely. Da di dum. It's not da 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 dum. It's da 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 da. The fourth drops out. If this is too technical for most of us, but anyway, the pentatonic is is deeply rooted in our ears. The Chinese had musical stones. If you go back to Confucius, um, he played a five, a, what was then a five-string instrument called a guqin. Later it became a seven-string instrument. And that was tuned in turn to one of the oldest, oldest traditions of music, which is stones. Back in the Shang dynasty, in the Yin dynasty, they got the pitches from musical stones that were t- tuned to, what are the five pitches? The qi and I, I don't even know. But they, the stones were so precisely tuned that they would go bong, 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 bong. And they were linked to the five elements and the cardinal directions and the so medicine, philosophy, music, uh, instruction, all came from the same source, and they would bring it, the elements in. So we now are here with our English language translations of our texts and thinking, hmm, okay, so first the Buddha gives us the, the prose, so it's in lines. If someone were to say to him, I have a phrase of Dharma spoken by the Buddha that can make perfect your bodhisattva practices. That's prose. There's grammar, there's mm, uh, a syntax, a structure for language. 
Then, immediately after that, comes a section of metered, of verses that go bump, 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 bump. 讲究智慧以众生 That's not prose, that's verse. Some scholars say this was the original way that the Dharma came down. Later, over the centuries, they strung it out into sentences. But first it was heartbeat connected, so people could remember it. Here we are in English, trying to bring that back home to ourselves, to trying to plant it here in a different culture, with a different language base, with a different consciousness, a different century. And I think um, safely we can pin it back to a musical form and to help us memorize it. So if any of you are getting on BART uh, Monday morning and you're going, he sets out seeking wisdom to benefit all beings, we'll say, ah, success. We did it. We, we lodged it in your consciousness in English with music considers what expedience will bring them liberation not apart from the thus come one's unobstructed knowledge which in turn arises from non-production wisdom I guarantee you won't hear it on KPFA it's not going to be you know it's not catchy but it's deep and we hear it somewhere beneath consciousness is where these sutras plug in so that's what we're doing when we try to uh, uh, put music to it. All right. We are in the Avatamsaka Sutra. This is the Flower Garland Sutra, the Buddha's great expansive teachings. <coughs> and we're looking into a, a chapter of the text called the Ten Grounds, the Ten Stages chapter. And the topic is the Bodhisattva. How does someone become profoundly unselfish? How does somebody truly set out seeking wisdom to benefit all beings? Is that possible? Well, from the Buddhist point of view, yes it is. And if you ask, how is it possible? This is the answer. The Ten Grounds chapter talks about that, tells you how to um, learn from the bodhisattvas um, who are, do they live? Mm. It's a paradigm that we're studying. So as soon as we take it into our bodies, mouths, and minds, the answer is yes, it does live. There, you could say there never have been bodhisattvas other than this wisdom, or you could say there have never not been bodhisattvas precisely because this wisdom is here. Whoever picks it up and lives according to it is, has taken the first step on the bodhisattva path. At that point, it's only a matter of time before you become, quote, a bodhisattva. Um, probably if you ask Guanyin Bodhisattva, are you a bodhisattva, she would gently smile and say, you know, um, I understand at, the, at, the, at, at, at Whole Foods they've got this great vegan bread. Let's go check it out. Maybe we could take some down to the park and share it with some, you know. She wouldn't answer the question, she would simply do it. So the label bodhisattva is much, much less important than the behavior of a bodhisattva. Um, anyway, we're, we need to look at the text. So let's take a look, first of all, at, at the third stanza, page 68, the one we just recited. Jiang chou zhi hui yi zhong sheng. The verb here is chou, to seek wisdom. Bodhisattva is hoping to 
uh, activate his or her inherent wisdom. And we need to say that the pronoun there is he, but this is supremely non-gender specific. It could be she. It need not even be human. Um, The Buddha is speaking this dharma for humans, non-humans, and others. So it could be a god, for example. It could be um, somebody manifesting as an asura to tame and calm the hearts of people who take conflict and struggle as their basic state. So the gender here among humans is certainly not male. Um, For the purpose of convention, we add he, we make it he, but it's not limited by any means. So if you would rather make that she, please do so. And it will make the same, the principles are identical. He, she, sets out seeking wisdom to benefit all beings. The point of that line is to say, not for himself, herself. He doesn't seek wisdom in order to be wise, period. It's wisdom to benefit all beings. The motive is key. The why, you know, right away, that the sutra wants us to identify, to, to put, put it in our hearts. Why do you do that? Why bother? Why go to all the trouble of imitating bodhisattvas? Because it's a lot of trouble. It's a lot of hard work and a lot of um, patience, letting go the benefits to benefit others. It's precisely because this person has identified that self-benefit and other benefit is, is the same. There's no difference. This is is not superhuman or magical. It's a direct result of getting rid of the boundaries of the self. From the Buddhist point of view, we're walking around seeing things wrong. As soon as we identify ourselves with this body, and it stops at my skin, this is it, this is me. I have my passport, I've got my degree on the wall, I've got my bank account, and my email address. Every time we do that, from the Buddhist point of view, we're asleep. We're seeing it wrong, not the way it is. Not that that's wrong, it's just limited. To think that's all there is to me is the the mistake that we all make. Um, When you use the Dharma to go beyond that limitation, says the Sutra, what you discover is that we are much more than just this thing. We're connected. There's, it's, it's a we instead of a me. It's us instead of I. And with that vision in mind, that's, this is the foundation of the, the sutra's description. The bodhisattva realizes that trying to get the good part for me is, is not bad or wrong. It's just really limited. It's not the whole story. And so the bodhisattva here, seeing the connection with all beings, says, I want to benefit everybody because that is actually self-benefit. The opposite is also true. If you're out to, um, for example, a negative example would be oil companies who say, this is British petroleum oil. These are profits for our shareholders. And 
in the process of extracting that oil, have an oil spill that pollutes uh, a huge piece of the planet, the Gulf of Mexico, the bay there, um, that's genuinely wrong. You know, that's selfishness that then goes out not only to not benefit everyone, but to harm everybody for the purpose of, of self-benefit. So when, here's a way to apply this text. If you, let's say the Buddha's wisdom is correct, the Buddha was seeing deeply, and he's saying that there is a piece of our hearts that is truly altruistic, that is genuinely good, and that's the the that's our potential for clear seeing that everybody shares. If if that's the case, then how do I react to the Gulf oil spill? Do I have a basis by which to judge whether that's right or wrong? And we live in a postmodern world where pretty much the value is whatever. I don't dare judge you because from your point of view, that's perfectly understandable. Postmodern relativity, right? relativism. Well, I guess that was just a choice they made. You know, No, it's called selfishness. And it's, it harms. That's the criteria. You can actually get a standard by which to say, from the point of view of the Buddha's wisdom, if you are selfish and then as a result hurt lots of people, that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. You should, you should do things that benefit others. That's now you can say why judge? Mm, the judgment would come here. You'd say if you are increasing affliction, if you're causing harm by your behavior, then you yourself are getting harm. You're harming yourself in the process of harming others. So in the short term, seeking profit, here the word is e, to e, zhongsheng, to benefit others. If in the search for profit, in this case, dividends on the stock shares, you are causing affliction, you're causing harm to other people, making their, impacting their lives, you yourself are getting harm. That's the flip of that, that vision of connection. The short term is we've increased the shareholders, the stock price. The long term is, and by so doing, you create a karma that's coming back to you in the shape of trouble and pain. Okay, so by bringing in that example, that's a very ugly, worldly example, but by bringing that in, what I want to show is these principles are alive and relevant when we engage these principles starting from the Buddha's vision of connection. That's not my vision. I still see me as me. But here's a window that says, take a look. There's another way of seeing this moment, this reality right this minute that goes deeper and offers us an alternative. And by applying that, we can actually get a view or perspective on a real situation that gives us an alternative way to look at it. I have a criteria by which to judge things like um, mad cow disease, for example. The, the value of this view is that it goes down to the, to the seed. It goes down to the root. This is a root principle. When it gets to 
an AP photograph that I saw in my AP news app on my phone this morning, which was huge demonstrations in Korea. People lining the streets in Korea. I don't know if anybody else saw this AP photograph. And it was just jamming the city. I don't know if it was Busan or whether it was Seoul. What were the, the placards they were carrying? No more U.S. beef imports. It was so important that the Koreans came out to demonstrate against importing American beef. Why? Mad cow disease. So that's a branch tip. Right? It's a photograph that I saw on my phone. People demonstrating in the streets of Korea. Why? Well, from the branch tip, you come back down to the root, which is same thing. Seeking personal benefit by feeding pieces of cows to cows. Because it's too expensive to dispose of the waste otherwise. That's a practice of the American beef industry. The result of that is mad cow disease, which now we know exists in California, which very large moneyed interests are trying like mad to cover up as quickly as they can because the Koreans do not want to buy our beef. Well, neither do the Japanese, neither do the Philippines, neither, you know, it's going to grow and grow. So it's the same thing. When you get this principle, you go, hmm, how should I behave? If this is true, how should I behave? The answer would be, look at my motive and act from the point of view of connection. Start with family. Start with neighbors. Um, today, across the street, was Cinco de Mayo, right? Did we figure, is that what it was in the end, David? Was it Cinco de Mayo? It was what? Hello to spring. Our school, Washington Elementary School, had a, a festival today. And it looked like fun. It looked like real fun. There were families walking around. Halfway through our my Dharma talk at lunch, uh, we, we heard this very loud uh, Motown oldies music coming in a very loud loudspeaker. They had live music uh, at their celebration. And it was a pretty good cover band. I heard it through the grapevine. Soccer to me, soccer to me. And... <laughs> And there, you know, and I, I thought, should I wait? Should we close the window? I had to stop my talk because the the noise was coming in from the festival, you know. And what do you do? We live across the street from a school. Well, you can complain, you can get upset, or you can go, well, that's nice. We we have some music briefly, you know, and it'll be over soon. And you know, I remember that song. So it was benign. And with a little bit of patience, you can live with it. But that is connection. How did it connect? There's no fences for sound. I mean, you can try to wall it out, put a baffle on it, but, you know, the sound was coming in our window. We're neighbors with the, the school where they were having a party. We're always on each other's radar screens. There are no fences between us, and we're always picking up each other. We have to have actual chemicals in our brain to limit our interconnection or else we would not be able to function because we're so much on each other's radar screen. Uh, 
that connection is true. We have to wall it out so we can continue. So if we use that as our basis, it gives us a way to function that is, you could say, karmically, compassionately, ethically wiser than just got to get my own good stuff, got to get the goods for me. So that's a way to apply some of this wisdom. Um, Somebody would say, well, you're not going to influence British Petroleum. You're not going to influence the American Dairy Association, American Meat Packers. Yes, I am. Precisely because we're connected. It's by using my share of the network, my bandwidth, my internal modem, that, and refusing to move from principle, that things actually change. I think it's the only way that ever does effectively. So one person's commitment is the whole story. There is no movement other than one person's commitment. So um, I'm, I'm working. The reason why I'm talking this way is I want the sutra principles to be relevant. Not that they're not. It's that we don't apply them. I want, us, I want myself and others to wake up to the relevance of these principles, to see that this is the news. If the, you know, when it gets out to the branch tips, it's just more of this, it's the same old. When you pick it down to the root and you wake up to it, you go, wow, that's really exciting. This is the most relevant story going, because this is where it starts. These are the principles that can change the way we think and live. People pretty much call it old books, you know, musty sutras. But uh, when you when you put a spotlight on it and connect it back, it's like this is the exciting story. This is the news. Now he sets out seeking wisdom to benefit all beings, and he thinks about. She thinks about what expedient means, what skillful method. Ling Jetua would allow them to get free. What's the way to set them free? Who? The living beings that he wants to benefit. How? With wisdom. All right? So he's looking for wisdom to benefit them, and he's the next thing he thinks about is okay, if I see the way, how do I let them understand? How how will people get it? If I get it, that's the first step. But then, how do I communicate? The Fang uh, Bian in Sanskrit is called Upaya. And the Sutra is full of Upaya, full of methods. The um, If you, if you look at a chapter that we lectured on before called the Ten Practices, the early practices talk about how the Bodhisattva wakes up. Once he gets to five, to, to practice number five, and also the fifth ground as well, that's where the Bodhisattva gets samadhi. And his, his or her meditation starts to really work at that point. The, the fifth ground, we're at number three right now, 
the, the fifth ground is a beautiful chapter because it shows how the Bodhisattva gets his skill and means. And it comes with stillness. Samadhi, we know the paramitas, you know, the perfections. Um, they're often six, but in the sutra they're ten. There's four more in the Avatamsaka realm. And there's a way to look at this text that links it with the paramitas. So, let's say, either the Ten Practices chapter or the Ten Grounds chapter, the first one talks about giving. In the Ten Practices, they call it the practice of happiness, because happiness is the source of, or giving is the source of happiness. In the uh, Ten Grounds, it's Huan Shi Di, the ground of happiness, and it's again about giving. Second is about precepts, ethical standards. Third is about patience. That's where we are now. Fourth is about vigor or strength. The fifth is samadhi. And then the sixth one is wisdom, prajna. There are four more after that. So in the fifth stage of these sequences of teachings, the bodhisattva, his meditation starts to work. From that meditation, the expedience arise. And in the fifth ground, when we get there, uh, which shouldn't be too long, next year or the next year, we'll get there, um, the Bodhisattva uh, starts to explore all the ways he can teach. And it's based upon, it's, it's fascinating, and I, I have to sit on myself because I could definitely tangent into that and not come back. So i got to stick with our text here. But in the fifth ground, the Bodhisattva goes into what are called the five sciences. Wu Ming Xue. Guang Ming de Ming. Wu Zhong de Guang Ming de Xue Wen. Five kinds of studies of light, literally. It's the ancient liberal arts curriculum. It's how people got knowledge in the past. It's Anybody who's interested in Dharma Realm Buddhist University knows that we are right now forming our curriculum for the school that we're building. And when you look back at what the ancients considered a liberal arts education, it's fascinating. That's what the Bodhisattva masters in the fifth, fifth ground. And it includes logic and causality is one of the major topics of the five. Causality is basically cause and effect. And you study cause and effect in its ramifications. And it's considered basic to education. So if you're educated, if you know something, you know about how things get started. And you can either look at the causes and see where they're going to go, or you can look at the effects and find out where you've been, where they came from. That's one. Um, he studies medicine. Medicine is one of the, the five medical studies, which is the body, you know. One of them is the study of, uh, step back, part of medicine, one of the, the divisions of medicine. This is all in the sutra, right? One of the divisions of medicine is the study of ghosts and spirits. Because why? A lot of sickness happens when your invisible body is disordered, is out of balance. Your emotional depression would be considered a medical uh, symptom, a medical 
syndrome caused by a disordering of the invisible parts of life, not the flesh and blood. So that's one of them. He studies Gong Chao Ming, which is um, arts and crafts, you could say, but the way they describe it, it includes knowledge of the natural world. So the Bodhisattva is an expert in gems, plants, trees, animals, the stars, astrology, predictions uh, from that astrology, uh, all of the connections between, uh, between the natural world. And I mentioned the st- musical stones. That's where the Bodhisattva learns that. Um, he uh, is an expert in architecture. He can build. He's a, he's a contractor. He builds lodgings that people live in, uh, all kinds of tools, of course. So the Bodhisattva becomes a, a gadget guy, a, a gearhead, you know. He learns the difference between the Mac platform and the PC platform, and he's an expert in all the different uh, kinds of technology available. And in the fifth one, it's fascinating, it's sound, shabda. The fifth of the liberal arts curriculum, the Bodhisattva learns everything about sound, which is language and music. So these are the the things that an educated person knows according to the education during the Buddhist time. That's all in the fifth the fifth ground, the Wu Ming Shi, the five sciences, and our Bodhisattva learns these, masters them all. Why? So he knows how to teach. He knows how to talk to his mom to get her happy. Because mom is not happy. Mom has been looking around and thinking, gee, I didn't do so well with my marriage. I didn't do so well with my kids. You know, they don't listen to me. I wanted to become a poet and I wanted to climb mountains and I got married and had kids instead. And I'm, you know, other kids are okay, but I'm really disappointed in my son. And, you know, mom is like that. Mom, some mom is not so happy. And she's gone to the church, and the church ladies, she sees them as not up to her uh, quality of understanding, and, and yet she goes along. With, so she, mom is not a happy soul because her life is not fulfilled, right? So the Bodhisattva says, how can I speak Dharma to get my mother to set all that stuff down and wake up and start to live now that she's 68 and has all the time in the world to, to get happy. And the Bodhisattva, because he can consider what expedients bring liberation, knows exactly what to say so that mom goes, hmm, I'm going to start with yoga, and then I'm going to take that class in photography, and then I'm going to buy an airplane ticket and go to Bali like I always wanted to, you know, and find out what's in Bali and learn gamelan and dance, you know. And mom just loses about 20 years of her, off her face and just starts to, you know, because the Bodhisattva knew what to say. And, or else she goes and volunteers at the hospital and starts to, to feed people the way she always wanted to, you know. So that's a mundane example of what motivates the Bodhisattva to learn expedient means to help wake living beings up. So to liberate them. What does liberation mean? It means to get out from under the baggage that we gather 
about who we are and what are our limits, mostly. What other kind of liberation do we need? We need liberation from fear. The bodhisattva, like Guan Yin bodhisattva, knows how to speak the Dharma so people lose their fear. And by golly, let me tell you, when you look back at Oakland, California, from um, Punakaiki, New Zealand, or Hokitika, either one, doesn't matter, Hokitika or Punakaiki, two cities on the west coast of New Zealand, when you look back at Oakland, California, you realize how much fear we put up with every day. Seven shootings in one night. When the folks in New Zealand hear about that, their eyes get big and they go, how could you live there? What in the world would cause strangers to, to fire at each other with deadly force trying to kill them? That must be a very toxic place. Aren't you afraid? You know. And you think, well, this is where we live. I mean, you know. <laughs> and yeah, because there aren't handguns and people shooting at each stranger's, you know, killing in New Zealand that much. You know what the crimes are in New Zealand? Sheep thieving, sheep stealing, uh, uh, joy rides in cars, you know, fist fights, have too much drinking. That's and the policemen barely, you know, are armed. They go around. So it, it's a different world, and we. This is the water we swim in. It's profoundly toxic, and we deserve to be afraid because there's actual danger in the, the streets of Northern California. And the gangs in Santa Rosa, that makes the news worldwide. Um, and yet we just, you know. I'll tell you what's terrifying. Highway 101. Highway 101 is terrifying, I swear. Uh, not that there aren't freeways overseas, there are. But somehow we just put up with driving the Nimitz, you know, and going south on the freeway. It's scary how we take our lives in our hands. That paint stripe is pretty thin as you come barreling by at 70 miles an hour going the other direction. That's how we live. So the Bodhisattva would love to set us free from that fear. Living in Australia for three months, I don't drive in Australia. Everybody drives on the other side of the road. I don't dare get behind the wheel. In Australia... I would die in an hour, the first half hour behind the wheel, I would, by reflex, turn directly into the oncoming traffic. I know it. People don't let me drive in Australia because I'm an American. I drive on the right side of the road. So it's like, uh, yeah. So, you know, how wonderful it was to not drive in Australia, mostly to walk or have somebody drive me from here to the university and back, and that was it to be on ground. I lived in a forest in Australia with ground under my feet, not pavement. How wonderful that was. Oh, my. Um, in a minute, uh, at 9 o'clock, I'm going to turn on my projector and show you some pictures. So we'll be doing that tonight. So I realized when I was not behind the wheel in Australia how much body tension I carry as a driver in California. Thank goodness it's not L.A. In L.A., you just up at a notch. L.A. freeways are scary. You know? 101 is pretty scary. L.A. is worse. But 
by golly, we just take it for granted that this is how we live. And uh, having been somewhere else long enough to, to recognize when the tension goes away, you get a perspective and you say, gee, this is, we all agree to do it this way. Is it wise? How can I be liberated from that fear? Right? What expedient means could I use? Well, one is I could refuse to drive in California, but somebody would have to drive me. Tomorrow I'll be on Highway 101 heading north. So, yeah, the Bodhisattva thinks, hmm, what expedient means will work to let people wake up? One of those expedient means is music. And some of you are nodding already because we work hard during the week and come to this comfy Buddha hall and hear some monk drone on and on. Of course we nod out. Please turn to page 13. who I miss dearly. Thank you. 
When is that expedient? Well, in Singapore, where I was just uh, three weeks ago, it's a very interesting situation in Singapore, which is there are lots of Chinese Buddhists in Singapore. That is to say, lots of people who follow Chinese Buddhism. Many of them are Chinese ethnicity, but they grew up completely in an English-speaking world. They do not read Hanzi. They don't read kanji, Chinese characters. Their names are Tan, Jung, Liu, and they spell it T-A-N-C-H-U-N-G-L-A-U. They romanize their names because they've never learned Hanzi. They're Buddhists. Mahayana Buddhism in Singapore is almost entirely a Chinese-speaking phenomenon. So these are people who are starving for Dharma because they don't get it in English and especially young people. So when an English-speaking Buddhist monk shows up, they're happy to have the Dharma in English. So I just gave a five-lecture series on the Universal Door chapter in English to a couple thousand people in Singapore who were just like, how nice, we never knew that all this was available because it was always... It was never the Sutra of the Lotus Flower or the Wondrous Dharma, the Universal Door Chapter of the Bodhisattva who hears the sounds of the world. So when they got the Pumanpin in English, it was like, wow, it was great. So we had a wonderful time in Singapore. And, of course, music is a big part of that. And uh, so we did She Carries Me and uh, Homage to the Bodhisattva Guan Shiyin and... Um, oh, I have a new, I have a new Guanyin song that you all haven't heard. It came up in Australia, um, which uses as the melody um, a, a, a tune that some people claim is the oldest British folk song. It's called the Cutty Wren. And I was walking to lunch one day uh, through the woods, through the bush in Gold Coast, and looking for a melody to fit. You know, in the Pumanpin, Guanyin saves people from disasters. She saves you from fire and flood and demons and bandits and, and the police. She saves you from the police. Uh, I thought of Occupy Oakland when I... That came. So I thought, we need a melody to fit that. And what came up was, 
Oh, where are you going, said Milder to Malder? We may not tell you, said Fessel to Foes. We're off to the woods, said John the Red Nose. We're off to the woods, said John the Red Nose. And it became, Oh, tell me your trouble, said Guanyin Bodhisattva. The fires will burn us, said all living beings. Recite my name truly, said Guanyin Bodhisattva. The fires will vanish and you will not burn. So it's, uh, uh, it's a banjo tune. And it's set to the what some people call the oldest folk song, which, this is a tangent, that melody, that song, the Kati Ren, was originally a protest song against excessive taxation by the king. The, the Ren was a symbol of the nobility, and they were off to kill the Ren. So it's a revolutionary song from 14th century England, say some people, other people disagree, but... Anyway, so that's our newest Guanyin song. And uh, the talk about expedience that people will be able to be liberated by. In Singapore, it was the English language. And having opening a door to access the Dharma through English language, which was not available otherwise. Sutra lectures. Now, some people said, well, actually, we do have some sutra lectures. We teach Dharma class to our kids in English, but it's mostly... Um, bits and pieces. It's not a, not a sutra. So. All right. Not apart from the thus come one's unobstructed wisdom, which in turn arises from non-production wisdom. Not apart from the thus come one's unobstructed knowledge, which in turn arises from non-production wisdom. What in the world does that mean? So let's do verse 4. There is something called non-production wisdom. And that's a wusheng um, hui. What would non-production wisdom be? Um, essentially that there are traditionally called three kinds of patience. There's patience with dharmas, patience with production or with arising, and then patience when dharmas no longer arise. What this is talking about is a stage of meditation that people, including yourself, can attain to, whereby our consciousness, which we're using right now to listen to my words and the music, and all our senses are bringing us, the lights, the sounds, the sensation of the floor, the temperature on our skin, that's consciousness at work right now. And there is a point in meditation where that flips around and becomes wisdom, which is inherent in all of us, but it's a different function. And anybody can, they say, realize it, certify to it, zhengde, that level of wisdom. But you have to flip it around. You have to cultivate to that point. Consciousness still works at that point, but you have available to you the function of wisdom. So... Where is that wisdom kept? Right inside. It's very much like, the best analogy would be, it's like having a program on your, on your hard drive that you don't know how to use. Adobe Photoshop, for example. The Creative Suite 6, which Adobe is now telling us we need to buy. <laughs> Creative Suite 5 is not enough. 
Creative Suite said, it's time for us to pay Adobe again. So they tell us, we need have a new product that you will need if you want to be cutting edge. So you open up Adobe Photoshop Creative Suite 6 and you go, good grief, this program has too many functions. Who in the world knows how to master it? So you have to take a class to learn how to operate all of the different amazing, wonderful things that Adobe Creative Suite includes InDesign and Photoshop and and freehand and uh, all the wonderful things that you use. If you don't know how to use it, it's just taking up space on your hard drive, right? But the potential for its incredible functions are there. You can create reality with Photoshop that didn't exist before your mouse clicked on it. So the wisdom is there inherent in our minds. The non-production wisdom is all there. We just don't know how to boot it up and use it. So that gives us that's a really good analogy. That wisdom of non-production, which is a state where you realize what? According to the sutras, and I have to give you the theory because it's not my state. The theory says that when you realize Wushang Tharen, which is also a state called Vutuitran, Avivartika, no further retreat, same state. When you get to that point, you see that everything that we experience right now is neither born nor dies. It's there, waiting for us to wake up to it. It's neither not there, nor is it there. And they say that awareness is so scary that most people quit. Most people get to that state as they cultivate along, and they realize that everything that they've known so far is false, empty, illusory, and yet totally real at the same time. And apparently, I, as I say, this is theory, I don't, it's not my state, apparently that awareness is such a huge impact on everything that we've known to date that most people can't digest it. And what happens at that point is, according to the sutras, the Buddhas come and exhort you not to quit. The, 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 the real Buddhas come and really say to you, don't forget your vows. Take one more step. Keep going. It seems like the end of the world is not the end of the world. So if you... Connie, was that your hand up? Yeah, question? You have to speak up loud. I got no chance of hearing what you're saying. I'm sorry. Somebody halfway along, tell me what she said. Your voice only reaches about to row four. Yes, correct. That is the place where this happens. That's right between the seventh and the eighth. She's heard this lecture before. Correct, Connie. Thank you. Between the seventh and the eighth ground. Seventh and eighth stage. In our, we're now in three, right? So hang in. I, I previewed five. When you get to the seventh and eighth, the body, this, this experience is described in real detail. The Buddhas come and say, don't quit. Living beings are suffering like mad. If you quit, turn your back on your vows, no help. You come all this way, just meditate as always. Get up for lunch, you know, go to the bathroom. Come back, wash your face, come back and sit again, and you'll get through it. And if the Bodhisattva accepts their exhortation and continues, 
They say the result is like what? The, the classic analogy that comes right from the sutra, they say it's like walking through the woods with a canoe or a rowboat or a sailboat on your back. You're dragging a trailer through the woods with a sailboat on it. Is that easy? No, it's miserable. Pull it through the woods. That's what all the cultivation from the first fashin, first resolution, to the seventh stage is like. It's hard going. It's tough sledding to get there. Once you get to that state and not be afraid of the end of the world, which is, they say it's just like that. It's like everything you know is seen to be false and wrong, right? And instead of retreating, you take the next step. You meditate and turn the wheel one more time. It's like getting to a crystal clear, smooth lake, setting your boat on the water, hoisting the sail and this breeze blows you across the water. No effort. That's what cultivation is like after the seventh crown. It's smooth sailing. And they say all the effort up to that point was seen as worth it. But most people quit. It's hard. It's scary. And so you have to be what? The key word again is patient. You have to have patience when dharmas no longer arise. You have to get to that state where everything stops, and yet you see it's always been there. It's insane, right? Because why? Consciousness, the discriminating consciousness that's always looking for logic, grammar, sense, that makes sense, right? You have to let that go to get through the gate. They say when you do, it's suddenly you go, wow. And consciousness doesn't go away, you can still use it, but now you have the function of wisdom. And expedient means are clearly there. So at that point, you know what to say to mom to wake her up, or to your parents so they stop fighting. You know exactly how to keep your parents married so they don't gradually just forget the fact that they loved each other at one point. So, you know, whatever individual you want to speak Dharma for, once you have expedient wisdom, you know what to say. How wonderful that would be, right? If you could heal people's pain through the words that you speak, knowing what will work. You don't waste a word at that point. You know just what to say to bring people past. What do you do? You take them from the branch tips where we get stuck back to the limbs, to the trunk, and to the roots. And they go, oh, I, I used to know that. How did I let myself forget? Right? So that's what expedient wisdom is able to do. And, of course, there's more. It's not just words. You have to do it yourself. You have to show them. Because we learn by example. But when you have expedient wisdom, every gesture speaks Dharma. So, that's what arises from non-production wisdom. And the expedient means that the Bodhisattva uses are, quote, not apart from, thus come one's unobstructed knowledge. That is to say, they are one with, they are identical with the Buddhas. What is unobstructed knowledge? It means that you connect. You see all the way through. Um, 
if you want to experience obstructed knowledge, then um, sit down and, and read. Let's see, how do I experience obstructed knowledge? Trying to write an essay when you're not inspired, when it doesn't connect to the heart. Trying to write something that is on a topic you don't really care about, but you owe the, you owe the assignment, you know, you've got to write eight pages on something and there's a deadline. Your mind will demonstrate to you obstructed knowledge. It's like even to the point where sometimes I, I look back at, I, I spend a lot of my time staring at a computer screen trying to figure out what I said a lot. I do that a lot. Like, okay, I wrote that down. That doesn't make any sense. How, was there a core of something? How do I adjust the sentence to make it be real talk, real ideas connected to the heart? I do that with a large part of my day. And chi whiz, when you finally make it connect, when it becomes unobstructed, even a single sentence, there's a feeling like um, ice breaking up on the river and the, the river running free. Whereas before it was, you're, push, you're forcing it. And then suddenly it's like, oh yeah, there. That's what I wanted to say. It's, it's almost physical when you finally get the sentence to connect, you know. Um, where else we experience that? You know that we're translating the Avatamsaka Sutra. Um, that's a, a big part of my life now. And uh, every, every week we meet together, and this continued while I was in Australia via the Internet, thank goodness, where 30, 40 people around the world sit together to take the Chinese text and put it into English. It's a big job. It, it's, it needed to be done a long time ago. Finally, we're getting it done. And many of the lessons that I've learned are profound, and they counter common knowledge. One of the common knowledge ideas is you cannot translate by committee. Scholars will tell you that. Don't try to translate with more than like three people in the room because too many opinions. You have to please too many people. You never get anywhere is the common accepted knowledge, right? That has not been our experience. Maybe one of the reasons is nobody's getting paid. It's entirely volunteer, right? And it's, we're doing it, the motive is love for the sutras and respect for our teacher. Uh, respect for the Dharma and love for our teacher, switch it around. So, Master Hua spent nine years lecturing on the Apatamsaka, and we have waited and waited to get it done. We just kind of picked pieces out. This was one of the first chapters that we did, but we only did the fourth crown. There are six more to go. So, all these people from different continents come together via Skype and FaceTime and Google Docs to work together. And it's genuinely hard these to get the ideas of the sutras to a place where we go, that's what we think it means, is hard. It's hard to do that. 
harder still to get 30 people to agree, harder still when we're working out of Sanskrit, Chinese, English, harder still when the guides that we have wrote down their opinions in AD 900, right? Where trans- the commentaries come from the Tang Dynasty and from our teacher. So we have the benefit of Master Cheng Guan's commentary, written in the Tang Dynasty, which is very alive. He's an authority. Master Xuanhua, our teacher, is an authority. We have, the, we have to collate all of that together, and it's still hard. And we're going, what do you think it means? You know, How do you get that? And people bring in examples from online dictionaries. You know, we, the, what the Internet brings us is incredible. Never before have there been, has there been access to so many tools. So we bring it all in and people have done their homework and we talk about it and, and we're going, nah, nah. And then there's the level of, is it really English? Is that what people say? Is that how people use these words? And we try and we try. And the other day, what was it? There was a word, a common word. I can't remember what it was. And we were struggling with it and struggling with it. And my job as, you know, at the moment I'm the facilitator for this, for one part of this project. And I have to keep my eye on the clock because these are people who love the tools and we could talk forever on a sentence we could meet for two hours and have you know one word we could do it if i didn't say we got to move on time to move on so we go and at the pressure of time and then somebody said one of the young people in the back said what about this and the, the word kind of floated in front of everybody's mind and we all went there's a moment of silence when you can feel it filter through and everybody goes that's it and it was like Bonk. And suddenly there was this ha ah, around the room and around the world. Everybody was like, ha, ah, that's it. I mean, okay, ready to move on. Move on to the next sentence. And this sentence of unobstruct, or obstructed knowledge became unobstructed knowledge with that effort. And what I learned was that when the motive is unselfish and the when nobody is allowed to to be the bully, when there's no heavies who are the who who come in needing to be respected versus having wisdom, right? When you get past those, that is to say face, okay, when there's no face to be kept, and when the motive is to bring the sutra to another generation in another continent committees can translate together it's an experience of uh, single mindedness there's a moment in that translation group when everybody becomes one mind it's magic for me that's magic and it doesn't happen every week but mostly it does sometimes it happens like over and over in a week when we're really hot. But you can feel as we translate, it's almost like cooking. You know, let's say you're making oatmeal. You put the water in the pot, you add a pinch of salt, and you wait for it to boil, and you're watching. And the pot 
it's quiet, right? And then there's blub blub, and there's blub blub blub, and then blub 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 blub, and then blub 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 blub. The water starts to boil. You put the oatmeal in, it calms, and it boils again. And it's ready, right? And there's that period. The committee goes through that very same process. We always we start it at uh, the time change. When is it? Let's say we start at one o'clock. We go to three, right? At two thirty, we're cooking. And that first hour and a half, we're coming to a boil. And it's always the same. That the last half hour, we're translating along. You know, we're really covering text. But it takes that whole process, and we get to a state where it's ishin, where people are genuinely in harmony. It's amazing and magic how it happens. So uh, you have that feeling sometimes of pushing through a barrier, and it takes everybody's effort. And there's a moment, and you're through. And that's it. That's what you're working for. So the, um, he's not apart from the thus come one's unobstructed knowledge. The bodhisattva is using the Buddha's knowledge, which is his own, her own knowledge. And that knowledge comes from his own, her own innate wisdom that has now been activated by the wish to benefit others and searching for expedient means. What is going to work? What medicine is going to turn the illness so that the patient returns to health, but a new level of health? Right? It's not just back to the same old. What medicine is going to wake, wake this person up, heal them? so that they, their dharma body is healthy as never before. That's what the bodhisattva wants to do. So he sets out seeking wisdom to benefit all beings. He considers what expedients will work to bring them to liberation. And it's not apart from the thus come one's unobstructed knowledge, which itself arises from wisdom that comes when you are patient with the non-arising of dharmas. Okie doke. So we did one paragraph, and next week we're going to speed up. But um, this is wonderful stuff, and I want to express my appreciation to everybody for coming to share this. Um, the people online who are joining us. Uh, any, do we have a count? How many? 18. How many? 18. 18? Okay, next week, double that. Type it out. Tell them all bring. Tell them all to bring a friend. All right. Mary Rose, uh, this sweet instrument, was um, on the airplane, 
and you tune the strings, you take the tension off before you take her up so she got untuned. Plus, she has been in 32 degrees centigrade weather, which is 90 degrees, in major humidity. So for her, the transition back to California is kind of like me with the sniffles. She, all of the, her wood has to rehydrate in a different way. Guitars are very organic, and uh, I'll never forget when I took my fold-up travel guitar, my travel air, to Kuala Lumpur one year. <laughs> Kuala Lumpur is one of the hotter, wetter places, and she just swelled up. And it, it, the guitar fretted itself to the third fret. The strings just contacted everything up to the third fret, and I, I just couldn't stand the heat. Poor, poor thing. So... This guitar uh, sounded so nice in Queensland, in New Zealand, and then on to Singapore, and most recently in Hong Kong. What a great travel companion. merit is on the back of your text or if no uh, you want to turn to the songbook the, it's on the back of your uh, chanting sheet and it's also in the songbook the last page of the songbook so the way dedication of merit works is you make a wish and you send it out uh, to benefit beings however you would like to do that it's yours it's your wish
Nee.